All right, y'all can have a seat. Thank you for being here today. Welcome, uh, Fellowship Asheville. My name is Fred Baker, and I get to be the, the lead pastor here. And it's, it's great to see y'all. And here's what I have been praying today as I've been uh, preparing this message over the past couple of weeks, as, as, as I've been thinking about gathering together this morning, what it, what it looks like, what it feels like, like what does God want us to say. And here's, here's what I keep praying for us today. That we have this opportunity in front of us to take our motives, right? To take what motivates us, to take, to take the intentions in our, in our heads and in our hearts. And, and we have an opportunity this morning to take those and hold them up to the light of Christ, right? To the, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see what he thinks about those, about our motives about our intentions, about the reason why we do what we do. And, 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 and in particular, I'm going to talk about uh, one area of our life uh, that is in every person's life, really no matter your age, uh, no matter your station in life, no matter where you come from, no matter where you're going, and it's this, it's work. Right? We all have work to do. Some of us uh, have paychecks that are attached to that work. Right? So it's real easy to define. Some of us don't. Right? And I would imagine all of us have work in our life that doesn't have a paycheck attached to it. We have something in our life that God has asked us to do, whether it's to, to, to add to our life, to take away from our life. We have something in our life that God is, is building in us. Right? And, and that's work as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that work and run it through the grid of Scripture, right? And, and, and one of the questions that I want to throw out to you today is this, to think about work, right? What you do, what God is asking you to do, it's this. If I could guarantee you unlimited success, what would you do for work, right? If I could guarantee you unlimited success, what would you do for work? Now, here's why I ask this question. I was trained to ask this question, right? I got my degree, I got my master's in counseling, and, and part of counseling is helping people figure out what to do for their career, what to do for their job. I took, I took an entire class on it. There is a battery of tests. There are books that I could give you that would help you figure out how you're made, what you're good at, what you're probably not going to be good at. But this question was also part of it. If, you, if I could give you unlimited success, what would you do? And I've used that question. I've gotten to see, I've gotten to be a part of, of people choosing careers for their life, of people like determining, okay, what is my passion, right? Have you heard that question? Well, just what is your passion, right? Because if you can get a job around your passion, oh, that's great, right? This question, that's what that's designed to do. Is to show you what your passion is, right? Now, the heart of this question, that's what it does, is it removes fear, it shows you your passion, so that way your imagination could soar, right? Like, like as I asked the question, did you kind of bounce that around in your head a little bit? What would you do? Well, the good news is I've got an even better question than that, right? And it's, and it's, and it's this question. What would you do for work even if you knew it would end in failure, right? You can thank Seth Godin for that question. I just heard him ask somebody that question a few weeks ago. And here's what I love about this question, because I've asked it to a few people. I said, you know, you've heard this question. What about this question? Here's the immediate questions that come to mind is, well, how do you define failure? 
How do you define success? Great question. How do you define failure? How do you define success? Right, because here's what this question does. This question, what would you do for work even if you knew it ended in failure? It forces you to define success and failure. And it puts value on its proper place. It puts value on the work, right? That the work is worth it. Because here's what the first question does. The, the first question, right, assumes that, that if you're pursuing your passion, it, you will meet no resistance, right? If you're pursuing your passion, you'll meet no resistance. There'll be no setbacks. There'll be no hurdles. Everything will be up and to the right. Now, how many of y'all have tried to pursue a passion and experienced a whole slew of setbacks? Twists and turns that you didn't expect, right? See, here's the problem. If you base your passion on that first question, the moment you hit a roadblock, the moment the, the road turns a direction you didn't expect, you know what your immediate thought could be? Oh, this must be the wrong passion, right? Oh, I must be missing something. But this question, this question makes you go, you know what? If the road turns ahead, I will go with it because the work is worth it, right? If there's a roadblock up ahead, I will figure out how to bring that roadblock down because this work is worth it. That's why, that's why I like this other question because not only does it help us define failure and success, this question does something that is important because it allows us to put value on the work. And so, it allows us to determine this is what we're going to hear about. This question, is the work worth it? Right? Is the work that you're doing, is it worth it? Is the work that you get your paycheck for worth it? Is the work that you do that you don't get a paycheck for, is it worth it? Right? What Solomon is going to do in Ecclesiastes is help us to know if it's worth it work. Right? Because is it worth it? And these are people that I know. Right? So I'm not just making these up. Is it worth it to spend 20 years putting clean water in villages that don't have it, only to have the organization that you led, the organization that put those in, just trickle away over time? Is it still worth it to spend 20 years putting clean water in villages? Right? Is it worth it to do something worthwhile for decades and when you finish, you've got things that to you seem mythological, like a retirement account, right? You've heard about them, but in your world, that's a myth, right? Is the work worth it to end your paycheck time with little savings and little retirement? Is it worth it? See what I mean? Like this question helps you to start defining success and to put value on the work you're accomplished. Well, let's see what Solomon has to say about this. Go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to do verses 1 through 12 today. And, and, and here's what we're doing in this series on Ecclesiastes. Um, um, we're calling it uh, foul territory because, because in, this, uh, in this book, you, you see Solomon a lot of times say, say, you know, life is hard, find joy. Life is hard, enjoy it. Like, like he keeps drawing us back to this, to this space where, where it is beyond our circumstances to still find joy in God. Right? One commentator said, 
Ecclesiastes is written so we know how to live with God when the Proverbs aren't playing out the way they should. Right? When you've trained your child up in the way they should go. And they're not cooperating anymore. You need Ecclesiastes. Right? When life isn't working out the way that it's supposed to go, you need Ecclesiastes. You see... This is what foul territory is because what Solomon is doing is he's helping us see what foul territory is and directing us back into the playing field, right? So let's look at verses, um, uh, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Now, I got my big Bible out today. This is my, you know, because I got a preaching Bible that doesn't have a bunch of notes in it. And then I've got my personal Bible that I use for all my, you know, just all the other stuff besides preaching. And my personal Bible is an NIV, a new international version, a nineteen like eighty four, I think, is when I got this thing, or is when it was published. I actually got it in the early nineties. Anyway, I like the way the NIV reads better than my preaching Bible. My preaching Bible is an ESV. This one reads better, so that's what I'm doing. All right, so so NIV chapter seven verse one. It says this: A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. All right, happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> right? Are y'all hot? You know, Matt was saying the coolest places to be is by here. The hottest place to be in this room is right up here. <laughs> I guarantee you, I'm burning up. All right. Whew. I feel like I'm going to start preaching in a minute. All right. All right. Here's, here, here's what we Like, when you read this, it reads like a collection of Proverbs, right? Like, like this is, is what it's doing. But there's a theme to these, to these Proverbs. Like, like it, the theme is this. It's like, death is better than life. Mourning is better than feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. A rebuke is, is better than the words of a song. The laughter of fools is annoying, Right? Like, like when you have a fire in your house and it pops out those little cinders and you're like, ah, gosh, I got to get that. Right? That's what the laughter of fools is like. And here's what all these words have in common. And it's the first quality of worth it work. And it's this. That worth it work teaches. Right? Your work is worth it if you are being taught in the midst of it. Like, that's one of the things that's worth it. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 1. It says, it says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Do you know why Solomon says that? Here's what happens on the day of birth. Like, when somebody is born. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Right? Like, 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 a parent holds a brand new baby in their hands and life is full of possibilities. And it's like, oh, I wonder if this little boy is going to grow up to be this. I wonder if this little girl is going to grow up to be this. Will they be an athlete? Will they be a geek? Will they be, will they be an artist? Will they be like us? Or will they kind of forge their own path? Will they change the world? Will they, will they not change the world? Like, like the, that you hold this baby and you don't know any of the answers yet. Right? It's just all possibilities. The day of birth is filled with dreams. 
In contrast to this, the day of death is filled with answers to those questions. We know what happened in their life. We know what someone became. We know what, what job we did, they did. We know, we know what path they took. You know, the day of birth is filled with dreams and the day of death is filled with facts. Facts. And dreams can inspire us, but facts, they teach us. Right? One of the things we say on staff as we're trying to make a decision, in particularly we said this a lot during COVID, and it was actually really hard to find in COVID because what we say is good data helps make better decisions. Do you remember COVID? <laughs> Everybody had good data, and they were saying different things. You know, it was, it was hard, but, 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 but what, what, what is good is when you do find good data, you can make better decisions because facts teach Right? Facts are great teachers and worth at work. Look at verse 2. Right? We see another, another teacher in this worth at work. We have mourning versus feasting. Right? We have pain of grief and mourning, and then we have feasting. We have joy and we have pleasure. Right? C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. Right? We get to hear and be with God in ways when we are in pain, that we are just not in times of joy and pleasure, right? See, worth at work will require us to learn from pain. Because when the road turns unexpectedly, that hurts, right? When a roadblock shows up that you didn't expect, there can be grief. And in those moments, God is there. And he teaches us in those moments to rely on him in ways that we don't when the road is straight and clear. You see, Jesus experienced great pain when he was crucified. And when he did, do you know what he did in the midst of that pain? Is he cried out to God. And he, he, he said a prayer. He, 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 he led us. He led the people that were there in, in, in a psalm of all things. A song. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't making that up. He was quoting David. And he was quoting a psalm. Paul in the New Testament says this about pain. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so just as we suffer, just like Christ did, so also through Christ our comforts overflow to others. Just like the comfort of Christ overflows to us, we can overflow that to others. You see, the pain we go through, the things we learn in that pain are there so that we can comfort others when they go through pain. And what I love about what Paul's saying here is that, listen, it can even be a different pain that you experience over here, but because of what God shows you, it can show up right here and you can still help somebody with it. The greatest grief counselors are people that have gone through grief, right? Because for everybody else, it's theory. For them, it's real. And they can tell you the God of all comfort. I can tell you what it's like 
when your father dies unexpectedly and how God catches you in a way that is unique to that time because I've been there. I can also walk you through, through Ross's five stages of grief or six stages, however many there are. Which one do you want? Do you want to know about the comfort of God or do you want to know about the stages of grief? If you're in the middle of it, you want to know that God's there, right? You see, pain makes a way for joy because pain teaches us to find God in the midst of our pain. And that brings joy. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says this. We see what doesn't teach us. Like if you look at the end of verse 4, where is the heart of the fool? The heart of the fool is found in the house of, what does it say? Pleasure. The house of pleasure. Y'all, biblically, a fool is a person who doesn't learn. Right? They don't learn from God. They don't learn from the wise. They don't learn from anything. Biblically, biblically that is a fool. And here's what Solomon wants us to know, that pleasure is fine, but you have to understand pleasure is an illusion, and it only lasts for a little while. Maybe this has happened to you, right? You finally have some time, a little extra money, you go get the massage, right? Oh, it's so nice, isn't it? Relaxing. They got the music playing, you know, like, like they're working out that spot, you know? That keeps giving you trouble, and it's so relaxing. And like you're kind of awake, but you're kind of asleep. And it's this special kind of place, right, where, where you, wake, when you wake up, or the massage is finished, you're not sure what day it is, what time it is. You are so relaxed. You go to your car, and you pick up your phone, and you see the email, right? That spot's back, right? The massage is gone, Right? Because pleasure is an illusion. Maybe you've had a great vacation, right? And as soon as you get off the boat, or as soon as you get back to the airport, what's waiting for you? Life is waiting for you, right? The anxiety of school, the anxiety of work. You see, you see pleasure makes a great servant, but it makes a horrible teacher, right? Pleasure is fine, but it's not going to teach you anything. Enjoy it, but no, that's not life. Look at verses 5 and 6, and we'll see our next teacher, because we see a rebuke coming from, from a wise man. Now, Scripture has a word for this, and it's called discipline. And when discipline is, is in the hands of the wise, oftentimes a rebuke doesn't feel like a rebuke. It may have a little bit of a sting to it, but it's also surrounded in kindness and mercy and grace. That's what happens when a wise person gives you a rebuke. And God does this to his children all the time. In the book of Hebrews, the author says this, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, worth it work teaches. And if you're pursuing something that's worth it, you are better because of it, because you are learning about how God works in this world. That is worth it work. It's not worth it work if there's nothing learned in it. All right? Let's see the next quality. Verses, verse 7 says this. It says, Exhortation turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. 
The end of a matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Be not quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Right? And here's the next quality of worth at work. Worth at work takes time. Right? Because here's why. What Solomon is saying is, is a bribe... A bribe corrupts because here's what a bribe tries to do. A bribe tries to get around the work, doesn't it? It's like, hey, yeah, I could, I could fill out these forms and come back in three weeks. Or, or I could slide you a little something right now and we could just speed this thing up. You can click, click, click on the computer and we can call this done. That's what a bribe does, right? It tries to get around the work. Patience, on the other hand, in verse 8, patience is better than pride because, because patience is about taking the time to accomplish something well. Pride just wants to get it done quickly. Verse 9 speaks of being quickly provoked, right? Because when you're impatient, what's the first thing that blows is your anger, right? But the book of James, it tells us, book of James actually tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. This is what James says. So worth at work takes time. Worth at work finds the process often as meaningful as the product. Right? And how do you know if you're doing worth at work or just slow work? Because slow work can be really annoying. What makes it worth it is this. Worth at work values effectiveness over efficiency. Right? There's a part of me that loves efficiency, y'all. You go into my office and everything has a place. And if it doesn't have a place, I have a place for things that don't have a place. Right? I love efficiency. I struggle with this because I will choose efficiency over effectiveness. But worth it work takes time. I have had to learn to slow down. Painfully slow at times. You see, you can be efficient but not accomplish what God has set out for you to accomplish. Like when I was a kid, you know what? Oh, it's going to make me feel things talking about it. When they gave us math books with the answers in the back, every other, every other answer had an answer, every other problem had an answer in the back, right? And when the teacher would assign those problems and then say those dreaded words, do you know what words I'm talking about? Pro- See, y'all hated it too, didn't you? I'm like, why do I have to show my work? The answers are right here. Right? And y'all, there are times I was ADD before ADD was ADD. And so, so there were times where I would still just turn in the answers. And Miss Miller, my fifth grade teacher, didn't take anything from me. She would give me, because other teachers just gave me a zero and that was fine. I didn't care. I was like, what are the chances of me failing third grade, right? (laughs) Slim to none, right? I can play the odds. Fourth grade, literally, and I think this is my fault, my fourth grade teacher only taught one year. (laughs) The year that I was in her class. She literally never taught again. Miss Miller was my fifth grade teacher, and she had seen all the games, and she didn't put up with anything. So when I turned in a sheet that had just the answers and she had been very clear and told me to to show all the work, guess what I had to do? Stay in and recess, do the problems, and show all the work. 
And here's why she did it. She wanted to make sure I knew how to do the work, not just produce the answers. You see, getting the right answer can make you an A-plus student, but showing your work actually makes you a smart student. And that's what she wanted for me. She wanted me to be smart because she knew I was smart. I was just playing the game. And she didn't let me get by with it. You see, God asks us to show the work because he knows we're smart. And he knows there is great accomplishment and there is great joy in taking our time and doing the work and not just producing the product. You see, being an A-plus student, just writing down the answers, that can get you through school, but showing the work gets you through life. You see, worth it, work takes time. Isn't that frustrating? Well, let's see another frustrating part of worth it, work. Verse 10. It says, do not say, <coughs> excuse me, do not say, uh, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Y'all, anybody hear about the good old days from your grandpa or grandma? Well, here's what they forget to talk about. The good old days were never as good as they remember. At least not for everybody. Right? What Solomon is saying here is that worth it work is present work. Right? There's a certain type of remembering that is good for the soul. To be able to look back on your life and see the hand of God take you through those blockades, take you through those roadblocks, to see the hand of God take you down those curvy roads, you can look back on that and go, man, it, we have a faithful God. I'd have a friend of mine in Texas whose house burned down four years ago. They are still battling with insurance. And he has, he just this weekend, he posted this video about the faithfulness of God over the past four years. They've had to move into four different rental homes. He's had to change his job. Like, life has been crazy. But all he talked about was, gosh, God has been faithful through all of this. That is looking back. That kind of looking back is good for the soul. But a person can live in the past so much that they neglect the present. Right? That's not what he was doing. He was saying, God was faithful then, has carried me through all of this, and he is with me right here today. And as I'm moving stuff out of this place, he's still faithful. Right? Here's the problem with the good old days. We don't remember what was bad with the good old days, right? And we see this in Scripture. Remember Exodus and Numbers, right? Like, like the nation of Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and, and, and God raises Moses up to, to, to bring them out of slavery. And, and that's the, the story in Exodus. And then the story of Numbers is they start going through the desert. And do you know what Because here's the deal. Moses stood up and told them, y'all, there is a promised land right over there. Let's go. And they looked around and they said, we're making bricks without straw here. Like we got whips on our back here. Let's go. So off they went. People paid them to leave. It was great. It's like this is what God is doing. And then they look behind them and Pharaoh's chasing them. Right? And they're stuck literally between Pharaoh and water. And, and God parts the waters and they go through. And when they, when, when, when they get through, the waters fall on Pharaoh and his army and they're done. And oh, this is great. This is great. Then they get to the desert. 
And there ain't nothing in the desert to eat or drink. And they have to rely on God. And I, I don't know, maybe they thought there was a highway. Right? With some convenience stores on the way, a couple of rest stops to use the restroom. Like, I don't know what they thought, but I know as soon as it got tough, you know what they said? Whew, I sure do miss the good old days back in Egypt. Remember those? We had cucumbers. Went to Sam's, got them three at a time. We had onions, we had leeks. Oh, it was great. Maybe we should go back. You know what they forgot to mention? Slavery. They forgot to mention that they were doing back-breaking work, not for themselves, but for someone else and getting nothing for it. That's what the good old days do. That's what living in the past does. Right? It makes whatever we're doing now not worth it. You see, the good old days are never as good as we remember, and worth it work is found in the present, not the past. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Wisdom is like an inheritance. It's a good thing. And benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. You see, Worth it work makes you wise. Worth it work makes you wise. And here's what I mean by that. The idea of wisdom is talked, a lot, uh, talked about a whole lot in the scriptures, particularly in Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, it is mentioned over 100 times, either wise or wisdom, right? And in Proverbs, um, you can kind of see that wisdom is this, a way to think about it. Wisdom is the truth of God applied to my life, right? Wisdom is the truth of God applied to life. Here's what knowledge is. Knowledge is the truth of God applied to your mind, right? Knowledge pursues the right answer, the right theology, the correct this, the correct that. Knowledge stays up here. Devotion is the truth of God in your heart and your soul, and it feels so good. You got that comfy chair, you got the candle, you got your journal, and the right pen, like, oh, it just feels so good, right? Right? Uh, see, I got some pen people here, don't I? Like, you got to have the right pen and the right journal to, to, to write, right? Like, like, that's devotion, and it's the truth of God in your soul, and those are good, and those are great. But wisdom? Wisdom is the truth of God that comes out of your mouth and is seen in your hands to others. That is wisdom. Wisdom is, is the truth of God in your head, the truth of God in your heart that is seen in your actions and your words. And here's what Solomon is telling us. He is saying that wisdom is a good thing, right? That worth at work helps you apply God's wisdom to your life. And you know it's worth at work when you've been doing it for a while and it's scriptures that come to your mind and come to your heart and, and are spoken out of your word when that blockade hits, when the, when the road turns, that's how you know it's worth it work. Now here's the deal. Worth it work isn't stumbled upon. Worth it work is actually chosen. Right? Worth it work doesn't show up on your doorstep and ring the doorbell. At least not very often. If it does, God love you. Like that's awesome. Chances are, 
you got to walk out the door and pursue worth at work. And Jesus taught about this. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. You see, Jesus here is talking about a life with God. What does a life with God mean? What does a life with God feel like? Well, it feels like a very narrow gate on a very narrow road. A lot of people will walk through a wide gate on a really smooth and paved road. But a life with God? Well, few actually choose that. So many people don't want a life with God because you know why? They don't think it's worth the work. They don't think it's worth it work. And they choose a more broad and easy gate. However, worth it work is found in the narrow gate. Worth it work is found in a gate that few people choose. Worth it work is found through a gate where the road is bumpy and not straight. Right? And so let me ask you this about your life with God about your faith in Jesus. Is your faith in Jesus worth the work? Right? Is your faith in Jesus worth it work? Is it worth the heartache? Because, y'all, let's get real. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you when you say yes to Jesus, life is like a country song in reverse. Right? You get your dog back, your girlfriend back, your truck works, like all the things. No. It's actually a whole lot more like a country song. Right? It's full of heartache because we live in a broken world. And yet we have a good God. You see, life with God has pain. Life with God has discipline. It has wise people that speak into our life. And it also has stupid, foolish people that try to speak into our life. And we have to know the difference. You see, life with God has lessons learned. And so if, if your answer, when I ask the question, is your faith in Jesus worth the work, and you find yourself wondering that, and you find yourself going, I don't, I don't know, then I've got some really good news for you. Because unless your answer is, is an enthusiastic yes, and I'm speaking specifically to people who have said yes to Jesus at some point in their life, and they feel miserable because of it, then I have got some really good news for you. Because it means you have believed the gospel, just not the gospel of Jesus. Right? Because I can guarantee you Jesus is worth the work. He is the narrow gate that we come through. Right? Because here's Jesus' secret about life with God through him. And he says that this life with God, that his presence in your life is worth it. In Matthew 11, he, he, he says that, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And easy and light don't mean no work. Because you know what a yoke is. Yoke is a symbol of work. And when you say yes to the yoke of Jesus, you say yes to the work of your faith being worth it work. You say yes to learning to do things differently than you've done them your whole life. 
Y'all had to learn to show my work. Right? Saying yes to Jesus means you say yes to people, um, like, like wise people in your life speaking from God's word to change you and shape you. Saying yes to Jesus says, means that you will say yes to entering grief full on because you know God is there with you. And you know that only he can comfort you when you're all alone, heartbroken over loss. You see, saying yes to Jesus is worth it. When I was very new in my faith, and y'all, I mean like really new, like days, weeks, months, somewhere in that time frame, I was still quite the partier in college. I was president of my fraternity and all that came with that, right? Not just the leadership, but you know, uh, you know the TV show Cheers? Where Norm would walk in, and what would everybody do? Norm! That was Fred at a place called the State Club. <laughs> right? And I said yes to Jesus in the midst of that time. And I remember a fraternity party, I think it was a fraternity sorority uh, mixer that, ni- that night. Woke up the next morning hung over, deeply hung over. And in the midst of that, the Spirit of God spoke, and he said, Fred, which life are you going to choose? He said, are you going to choose to keep living the way that you're living? And you've got great ambitions, you've got great dreams. Or are you going to give it all to me? And are you going to follow me instead? And he was asking me, did I want to pursue pleasure, that I want to climb the ladder of success, which would be the wide gate. And y'all, here's what's so amazing about our God. I had said yes to him, and he was going to let me choose that gate. He was going to let me choose a wide gate of pleasure and worldly defined success. And I know he was going to love me no matter what I chose. And for you, maybe that's where you are. Like, you've said yes to Jesus, and you've chosen all these other things. Well, what I did right then is I said, you know what? I, I, I don't know who else to follow except for you. Like, I've got ideas, but you've got the plan. I realized it was Sunday morning. I went home, took a shower, went to church. Y'all, I don't know if y'all drink. But I'm going to tell you, when you drink the amount that I drank, you don't get the smell of alcohol off your body by taking a shower. Right? It comes out of your pores. I drank that much. And I was sitting in church, and I know I reeked of alcohol. And do you know what people said to me? We're glad you're here. That's what they said. I was glad I was there, too. Because that church taught me how to follow Jesus. Because he is worth the work. And so for you, as we go into communion, I've got that question that I want you to rattle around in your head. Is is Jesus worth the work? Right? 
See, that morning I made a choice that my life with Jesus, to be yoked to him and and to, to, to let him strip off everything else that I was being yoked to, but to be yoked to Jesus, that he was worth the work. And so the choice for you as you come up here to communion is who do you choose? Do you choose to be yoked to yourself and your ideas, or do you choose to be yoked to Jesus? And if you are yoked to Jesus, then this table and this time is for you. But if you are not yoked to Jesus, that's okay. Stay there. Jesus isn't done with you yet. He'll, he'll, he'll do what he needs to do to show you how good he is. You sit there and you talk to him and you, let, you get to know him. And for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, right, do you choose to walk through the narrow gate? Right, I'll ask you to consider the choices you are making. Are they worth it work kind of choices? Or are they wide gate choices? And I ask you to sit in silence with the Holy Spirit and ask him those questions before you come up here. And when you come up here, uh, the elders will be here to, to serve you communion and then go back to your seats and we'll all take it together. Okay, let me pray for us. And Matt, I am gonna need your help up here, just so you know. Uh, Jesus, um, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit heavy, this text today, but Lord, your yoke is refreshing. I think of Psalm 23, that, that you are our good shepherd, and you lead us into green pastures. You lead us beside still waters, and you do restore our souls. But what is also true about you is your rod and your staff comfort us. Because your goodness and your kindness and your mercy follow us all the days of our life. And so, Father, you are worth walking through that narrow gate for. You are our worth at work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When uh, Jesus uh, was with his disciples, they did the Last Supper, and then Paul in the book of Corinthians talked about that. And he, he talked to a church that was divided and, and how they were abusing the Lord's Supper in many ways. And, and through that, we get to see what the heart of the Lord's Supper is, what the heart of communion is. And it is the good news of Jesus. That his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And that's all we need to come together. That is the heart of the unity that Paul was trying to produce in that Corinthian church. Because he said, y'all are all very different people, but you come together under one umbrella. And that is Jesus. And so with that, let's proclaim his death until he comes again. His death and resurrection. His body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. Jesus, you are good. And as we go into this time of worship, may we declare that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.